Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We start the week with another conversation with a candidate for office in November. Charlie Den is the Republican incumbent congressman in the 15th District. Congressman Den is running for his seventh term. The 15th District includes parts of Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, Lehigh, and Northampton counties. Congressman Charlie Dent, welcome to the program. Congressman Dent, are you there? Congressman? Okay, apparently we lost Congressman Dent. We'll try to get him on the phone here in uh, just a few minutes. But uh, did want to talk about uh, the the, the uh, 15th district. Uh, this is a district that stretches 100 miles from the Lehigh, uh, from the Delaware River, I should say, all the way until the uh, until you get to the Susquehanna River. And so it is a wide, and really, if you look at it that way, it is a wide uh, swath of land in Pennsylvania. And uh, kind of a, a, a different district in that uh, you have uh, a lot of mo- moderate Republicans in uh, the Lehigh Valley stretching out to Lebanon and Dauphin County, where you can probably say that uh, there are more rep- uh, conservative Republican voters. And uh, those are uh, th- that's the district that Congressman Dent uh, represents. His opponent in uh, November's election, uh, Democrat Rick Doherty. He is the former Lehigh County Democratic chairman. And Paul Rizzo, who is a libertarian. We will have uh, both of those candidates on our program coming up here in the next uh, few weeks. Um, So uh, we're trying to get uh, Congressman Dent on the phone right now. We're having a few issues here this morning, but we'll get the congressman on the phone here in uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, Coming up later in the program, uh, we will be talking with... uh, Kristen Hauser of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Uh, The latest comments by, I don't know if I should say latest, because uh, every few days there are uh, some new publicized comments coming out from Donald Trump that uh, seem to generate controversy. But the ones last week with uh, the the 2005 tape where uh, Donald Trump talked about uh, uh, women and what he as a celebrity can get away with as uh, what he does with with uh, he talked about kissing women and uh, actually uh, as you know some people have described as groping that has led to a national conversation about uh, about sexual assault and uh, we'll be talking with uh, Kristen Hauser of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape Okay, guys, we're, he's on the line? All right. Congressman Dent, are you there? I'm here. Okay, good. Good morning. All right, thanks. We had a little bit of a problem there, but uh, good morning and uh, welcome to the program. Uh, Congressman, you're running for your seventh term in Congress. Uh, when an incumbent runs, it often, often is considered a referendum on the, the, uh, on the incumbent. So why should be, you be reelected? Well, Rich, first, thanks for having me on the, thanks for having me on the show. Um, well, one, I, I've demonstrated a, a record of proven leadership in Washington. Well, Washington, in many respects, is broken and, and steeped in, in dysfunction and paralysis. I've been one of the few voices down there who's actually tried to stand up there and bridge the gap. Uh, the guy who's been called upon to try to uh, impose solutions or enact solutions and collaborate. In fact, I would also tell you that, um, you know, just to give some proof of that, uh, the first appropriations bill that has been passed on time since 2009 was mine. It just passed two years, uh, two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, on uh, military construction, veterans affairs appropriations. I, I've been spending a lot of time, you know, on the appropriations committee, trying to find solutions to problems. 
Uh, I'm also chairman of the House Ethics Committee. It's the only committee in Washington that is truly bipartisan. That is only there are five Republicans, five Democrats. Anytime something happens, there must be a consensus. So I always have to work in collaboration with others. Uh, and at a time when so many in Washington seem to be dug into their foxholes, unable to come out of those foxholes, uh, you know, simply afraid to do the hard work of governing, I, I've demonstrated that uh, I have the capacity to do it. And we're going to talk about a number of issues uh, a little bit later here in the program. But what I have to go to first is Donald Trump. And, you know, it seems as though Trump has become the issue in the campaign. Uh, you were one of the first Republicans to disavow Trump. For those who don't know, why did you do that? Well, I had made my statements. Excuse me. I had made statements uh, uh, you know, over the past year when I, I had heard some of the remarks he had made that were very incendiary, incendiary and inflammatory comments, uh, whether it was on uh, John McCain's services at POW, uh, mocking and disabled individuals, some of the ethnic smears with respect to uh, Mexicans and, and Muslims, uh, the Megyn Kelly situation, and other misogynistic uh, comments. Uh, David Duke debacle, I think, on a long list. Uh, he had a judge uh, uh, commented on was unqualified to uh, uh, rule in a case because of his uh, uh, Mexican ancestry. Uh, and then, of course, there was the content we uh, dust up. Uh, and I, I just felt that these incendiary comments and inflammatory remarks uh, were uh, a bit too much for me. But it wasn't only that. It was also the lack of policy specifics and lack of policy knowledge um, that uh, uh, that also caused me a lot of concern. So there were some. I had some issues uh, with our nominee on Russia, uh, NATO, nuclear proliferation, particularly in the foreign policy realm, when I had expressed some concern. So it was for those reasons that I had said that I wasn't uh, prepared to uh, support it. I read a quote from you uh, back in August that you said you didn't think that uh, your thoughts on Donald Trump would make much of a difference to voters. Do you still feel that way? Uh, yeah, I, I believe most voters are going to vote for president, senator, member of the member of the house, based on uh, the qualifications of the candidates. I, I don't, uh, I don't believe that uh, voters will take direction from me or anyone else on how to, uh, in terms of how they should vote for other races. That's always been my view. I never felt that political endorsements or lack of endorsements really mattered much. Uh, in terms of uh, how it would affect other races. You know, and I, I think most people would agree with that, but then this year is so different, and as I said earlier, that Trump has become uh, so much of a lightning rod for, you know, it's like crowding out the the other issues that, um, you know, it seems as though what he is doing is, uh, you know, in energizing his base, and you wonder whether that base turns on people like you who have disavowed his candidacy. Well, Scott, yeah, look, I, I, I can't speak to how voters will react. All I can say is obviously there are people who are, are both pleased and displeased with me over this, but, but I'm not running for president. I'm running for a member of the House of Representatives, and that's been my goal all along. And as I said, I've been trying to run a campaign that's pretty positive uh, based on you know, my record as a member of the Appropriations Committee is somebody who's been able to actually get some things done. And I'm the guy that oftentimes people turn to when, when Congress gets in these jams about how to move forward. I'm often one of the members that are sought out to try to figure out a way to break the logjam and usually part of the solution. I'm not afraid to do that. Uh, I've often said there are too many in Congress who are very good at telling you what they will never do. 
uh, but we need some folks who can stand up and tell us what they can do and what they will do and at times what they must do. Uh, and, uh, and that's, I guess, where I'm a little different maybe than some of the other folks who are running for Congress right now. So, I, like I said, I believe I can be part of a solution, a capacity to affirmatively, uh, I have a capacity to affirmatively govern the country, and we need a little bit more of that in Congress. Let's talk about that, uh, Congressman, because let's face it, uh, the nation, the Congress, has become uh, very partisan, very polarized over the last uh, decade or so. I don't know, I can't really point to a time when this all started. But, uh, you know, there are people who say that there are very few moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats in Congress now that uh, the extremes have taken over. How do we get past this polarization, this great divide, and actually get something done? Uh, well, again, you know, we're, it's likely that um, you know there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's a decent shot we could have a divided government again after this election. Uh, and you know, I believe that you know when you come to Congress, and you know you're not there's not one and there is not one party rule. Uh, many members must accept the fact that they have responsibilities. To actually govern the nation, and that's been a concern that I've had. That many folks believe their job is to come down there and simply object and oppose whatever is on the agenda from both parties. This is not a specific either party. Uh, and but when a divided government, you know, you always have to find people who have the, the capacity to, to find a consensus, to seek compromise, and to, to move on a particular problem. And um, that is, in a, as a member of the Appropriations Committee. You know, there are many in Washington who will say somewhat derisively there are three types of people in Washington, Republicans, Democrats, and appropriators. And they say that because it's the only committee where we actually have to pass something every year. We have to fund the government. We have to fund the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health and our veterans programs. And I'm going to have a long list of things we must do. And so we have to come to an agreement, regardless of who is sitting in, in, in the various chairs in the House and the Senate and in the White House. Whether it's Republican or Democrat or a mix, we have to come to an agreement, and that's what I, I, that's how I see my job. I have to be one of those people who can can sit down and do what's got to be done uh, when it has to happen. There are others, you know, as I said, who are good at telling you what they'll never do, and then you know can just uh, vote no and and then complain about the result. Mm. One final Trump question, Congressman. Uh, you have also said that you wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton because you uh, say that uh, she's a flawed candidate. But one final Trump question, and this is what has been uh, focused on mostly this weekend, where uh, Trump has said the election could be rigged and he questions the integrity of the election. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I believe that our, our, you know, that there'll be an election and I believe as Americans, we will accept the result, uh, regardless of who wins. Uh, so, uh, no, I don't believe the system is rigged. I, I believe that uh, you know we, you know, we're going to have an election, and you know I'm sure there could be some problems in one jurisdiction or another here and there, but uh, nothing that could affect the result. And so, I believe the result would be uh, uh, legitimate and uh, and would have to be uh, accepted. So that's that's my my view on that. And I've also said, yeah, I'm not supporting Hillary Clinton under any circumstances. I believe the way she mishandled uh, negligently and carelessly classified material uh, was in itself uh, disqualifying. And the director of the FBI, but he did not indict her criminally. He certainly indicted her politically with his words. And, and as somebody who gets to handle classified material from time to time, I can assure you that uh, had I or a lot of other folks mishandled classified material in that manner, least of our problems would be maintaining a security clearance. 
All right, let's talk about uh, some issues. Let's, uh, and I know I, this sounds like a singular question that I'm asking for a single answer, and it, it's probably impossible to do, but uh, what is the most significant issue facing the country right now? Oh, Scott, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say the biggest challenge our, our country is facing is, is the lack of growth in our economy. There's and, and one thing that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both tapped into is a legitimate anger and frustration. And I think much of that anger and frustration is economically driven. Uh, wages have not grown much. Uh, it doesn't seem that a lot of young people are just not finding the opportunities they need to to start their, their lives and their careers. Uh, and and it seems to me that lack of growth in the economy is 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 really what is at the core of the, of the problem. Until we get this economy growing, we will not see wages increase. When the economy grows at a more robust rate, that means there'll be more demand for work. When there's more for de- demand for work, you know we tend to see an upward pressure on wages. That's the most important thing I believe uh, that we can do. Uh, so I guess on the domestic front, I'd have to say is jobs in the economy. Uh, on the international front, I think that the biggest challenge we're facing, and this is criticism of the current uh, Obama administration, is that. Many of our friends and allies feel that America has become detached, retrenched, and uh, is vacating the stage. And we are seeing a much more dangerous world as a result. Uh, you know, it's, it's perceived that we have largely vacated much of the space in the Middle East. That vacuum has been filled by the Russians, the Iranians, and others who do not share our interests or our values. Um, you know, uh, in the Pacific Rim, too, there's a lot of concern that China has become more assertive, and there are many more questions about American there. Uh, and so I think there are all those types of issues on the international stage where our allies are concerned um, and, and in some cases feeling a bit dissed. Uh, and many of our allies and our adversaries uh, feel emboldened. So I think that's another uh, very big issue that we have to deal with on the international front. We're going to talk more about issues in just a moment with Congressman Charlie Dent. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Republican incumbent Congressman Charlie Dent. He represents the 15th district. It includes parts of Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, Lehigh, and Northampton counties. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. Congressman, you said just before the break that uh, you thought that uh, one of the most significant issues that uh, the country faces is an economy that is not growing. You know, the numbers say that... uh, here we are eight years after uh, the recession, the 2008 uh, recession, that we are growing, but everyone admits and says it has not been uh, a typical growth after a recession, that the jobs haven't come back, at least the, the good paying jobs. What do you attribute that to? Why do you think that this post-recession growth or recovery is different? I, I believe that many of the policies of this administration have contributed to this slow growth. Think of it this way. Um, many of their policies are very heavy on regulation. I can go down a long laundry list of rules and regulations promulgated by this administration. The new overtime rule, for example, is coming up. That is having an enormously devastating impact on small businesses, small nonprofit organizations, and others. But I could probably list about a dozen or so rules like that that are slowing down growth. We have a tax code that is not competitive. Uh, We need to broaden the base, uh, limit or eliminate as many preferences as possible, particularly on the business side. We can also do this on the individual side of the equation. The 70,000-page tax code needs to be simplified. 
rates lowered, and underbrush swept out. Uh, that would be enormously beneficial to growth. Um, you know, we've had you know, the administration hasn't shown a lot of interest uh, in, in dealing uh, with that sort of issue. Uh, so those are just two things. Tax reform, regulatory reform, I believe are absolutely essential to restoring confidence in our in our economy. And there's and there's a lot of money. Tax reform, there's two trillion dollars of American money sitting overseas. We ought to have a tax code that is like much of the rest of the developed world in terms of corporate taxation, business taxation, so that money can be returned to the United States. We want that two trillion dollars back here and invested. That would be about the best stimulus I can think of. Uh, but we need that kind of leadership coming out of the White House, which we, we haven't had. There are many in Congress who are prepared to deal with a, a very significant tax tax reform and uh, and regulatory reform. I mean, I get down this list of rules and regulations. I mean, uh, new rules aren't ceiling fair. That's a small thing. But nevertheless, it's indicative of the problem that we're facing. I mean, when we get down into this, into the weeds of these rules, I mean, there, there seem to be imposed in so many aspects of human endeavor that it's having a negative a very negative impact. You know, I mentioned the overtime rule, you know, the fiduciary rule, uh, the joint employer rule, uh, you know, all the issues dealing with, with coal, for example. Uh, these are all having uh, real impacts on 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 people and their and on their on their, their livelihoods. Now, what you uh, your answer there is probably a, a you know pretty common amongst uh, Republicans across the country. But uh, you know those who would uh, you know you, you mentioned coal for example uh, that there are people who would say well there's reason for those rules there's reason for those regulations that uh, uh, for the most part they're just not implemented for the heck of it that they're trying to guard against something. Well, sure. We, everybody wants reasonable rules and fair rules, but the clean power plant rule is designed to shut down coal plants. I mean, that's the that's the goal, the, the whole rule. Uh, but you know, we actually do need coal to help electrify this country. And one thing people may not like coal as an energy source, but the thing they like worse are blackouts. Uh, and so we need uh, we need uh, stable, reliable, base load energy, and we're getting most of it from gas and coal as well as nuclear. And, you know, I love the alternatives and renewables. We should be focused on those, too, but more in terms of research and development, not in terms of trying to commercialize any particular uh, hmm. technology. And I want to talk about that overtime rule. You've mentioned a couple times that uh, uh, you, that you do not support it. In fact, you support delaying the implementation of the new overtime rules. Just so our audience knows, we did devote a program to this, but these were, are rules that would double the maximum incomes for paying overtime, thus making millions of more Americans el- eligible for overtime pay. Um, you touched on this, but why specifically do you support, and maybe I should put it this way, ask the question two ways, why do you support delaying the implementation, and do you oppose it completely? Well, what I would, well, I support the delay, and first, people are not going to get a raise. Uh, they're going to get, people will get their hours reduced. It will disrupt the way these organizations operate. I'll give you two specific examples. The LGBT Center in the city of Allentown told me uh, the leader told me that because of that rule, he would be unable to hire a development director. The person who runs the Community Action Committee of the Lehigh Valley uh, wrote about how, or spoke publicly about how this rule will cost his organization hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, his organization provides food assistance, housing assistance, sheltering, uh, weatherization services, a very basic, they support very basic human needs. The YMCA told me this will disrupt their ability to operate. 
what we should be doing is we can take the threshold up from $24,000, maybe to twenty-eight or 29000 index, but to double it will have an enormously disruptive effect. I will have staff on, uh, you know, in my office, you know, if this rule takes effect, who will not be able to take home their, uh, their, uh, their iPhones or their Blackberries uh, because if they do any work on that, I would have to pay overtime. I mean, th- these are the kinds of uh, interruptions in, in, in work that we are going uh, to see. You know, I, I just mentioned the overtime rules as one example, but I could also point out, you know, just the health care law. I mean, look what's happening in this country. You know, because of this law, we are seeing premiums spike up. Uh, certainly deductibles are up and co-pays. I mean, the, the, the law, the health care law, is, is collapsing two years ahead of schedule. I mean, this is also causing a lot of disruption you know, in the workplace and also impeding growth. So, I mean, I, like I said, that, that overtime rule is a, is a big one uh, for a lot of folks right now, but so, so is the continuing drama of the, of the health care uh, debacle. What would you replace that with, Obamacare I'm talking about? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, one of the, the, there are several things that most people agree that they do like about the law, uh, keeping children on to the age of 26, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, tests that are, uh, you know, some of the procedures that are paid for. Uh, but, you know, one of the good things that's come out of it is we have millions of people who are uninsured who are now insured. But if you were to get rid of Obamacare, how would you replace it? Well, look, we always did agree. There was always agreement that we should allow uh, uh, young people up to the age of about 26 to be able to remain on their parents' plan if, there was a defend- if they had a dependent policy. Yes, we agreed to that. We also agreed, too, that people with pre-existing conditions should not be excluded from coverage. They should have access to affordable health insurance. There's never, there was never a disagreement on, 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 those, on those two issues. Uh, but... Um, what I would do is try to open this up to a bit more competition. That you know, look, I, I don't think the healthcare law is going to be repealed anytime soon. So how do you try to make this thing function uh, effectively? I would suggest that we do open up uh, the insurance market to allow cross-state purchases of insurance. Maybe let people take those subsidies outside of the exchanges toward their current plans. Uh, why don't we also allow for uh, you know some real medical liability reform? Uh, to help try to address some of the cost issues that are driving up uh, the cost of health care. Also, uh, for a lot of individuals and small organizations, let them pull together um, and uh, across state lines and realize greater uh, purchasing discounts when they buy insurance, just as uh, large companies do when they self-insure. Let's make it easier uh, for people to buy affordable coverages and let them tailor those coverages to their employees' needs. Now, And for those who are you know, who have, you know, who have pre-existing conditions, high-risk pools at the state level, subsidize individuals in that pool. That would be a far more effective way, but make those, those pools function. Uh, we have many of them in states prior to the law. Some of them function well, others didn't. We have to make sure that they function effectively, and that would do a great deal to help people with those pre-existing conditions so they would have access to, to coverage. Now, when you talk about all the people who've gotten coverage, yeah, a lot of them got gotten coverage through Medicaid. But coverage does not equal access. There are a lot of people who are currently in Medicaid who really don't have much access to a, to a physician. And, uh, and Medicaid is often considered to be a second or a third-rate coverage for most people. I don't know many people who, you know, who, who really desire to sign up for Medicaid as a, as a health care coverage, and again, because the access is so limited.
Mm. And I'm trying to touch on as many issues as we can, Congressman. TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, you support it. You know, it seems like a long time ago that uh, uh, Donald Trump, when he first started running, trade was one of his uh, main targets. Hillary Clinton since has come out in opposition to TPP. Uh, Tell us why you support that. Well, well, first, this is an issue where my opponent and I uh, have some disagreements. He, he has taken a very, uh, I'll say, a, a, almost a nativist, nakedly protectionist, economically isolationist position on trade. Uh, the United States represents about 5% of global population, yet we're about 25% of global GDP or 25% of the world's economy. We did not do that by simply trading with each other. Vacating the field on trade, as my opponent has suggested, he has said that we should get out of WTO, you know, we should simply retreat, withdraw from all these agreements. He says that, but what that means is we won't be at the table, we the United States, but the Chinese will, and the Chinese will write the rules, and they will set the standards of trade. That would be the worst thing for the American worker and for American industry. The United States currently has 14 trade agreements with 20 countries. We run a net manufacturing trade surplus with those 20 countries. I'm not saying with every one, but overall, we run a net manufacturing surplus, and I believe the numbers in agriculture even greater. Uh, so my point is that we must be the country that leads. We have to set the standards. Now, the Pacific uh, Treaty, the TPP, is not going to be brought up this year. It's going to be left to the next president. I don't know what will happen uh, with that particular uh, agreement. Uh, but my point is that we should engage. I have also suggested now that the British have Brexited, and I'm not here to speak for or against Brexit. That was the decision of the British people. But I've suggested, well, why don't we engage in a bilateral trade discussion with the British? Let's call this agreement NATIP, the North Atlantic Trade Investment Partnership. The U.K. is the largest investor in the United States. Why don't we as a country have a trade agreement with the U.K., arguably our closest friend and ally? Uh, let's get into that kind of an agreement. Uh, and try to, um, you know, to, to open some markets uh, with uh, with friends and allies who are you know, who are clearly uh, already invested here, and we invest there too. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things we need to be talking about on trade. It's not a zero sum game, and we also, of course, always must help anybody who will be impacted negatively by trade. You know, there, I believe, on balance, when we trade overall, there there are more benefits than there are uh, than there are deficits. But there are people who are negatively impacted, and we have to make sure we are providing the skills and the services to those who are displaced as a result of trade. But quite often people are uh, displaced. Oftentimes trade is blamed, but it's often because of maybe innovation or or loss of competitiveness in a certain industry. I mean, it could be any number of issues. It could be management failures. It could be a number of things uh, that have led to that. But I think we have to just be smarter about, you know, how we we train workers. Uh, That's an issue that I've noticed that we have a lot of jobs in this country, particularly in the manufacturing sector that are unfilled, uh, and that's because we don't have people with the skills necessarily to, uh, to replace, uh, you know, fill those jobs. Congressman, we're almost out of time, and I'd like to leave candidates an opportunity to uh, uh, leave voters with a message. What would yours be? Uh, Scott, my message is this. You know, this country is, is really going through a, a difficult time, you know, economically and internationally. We will need leaders in Washington who have the ability to act like adults and actually govern. We need people in Washington you know, who, who can you know, work with the president of either party uh, when, when they're correct, when they're right, and, and, and support them. And at the same time, 
be a check and a balance against that same president when that president is taking uh, taking a turn for the worse or moving in a direction that that I believe would not be in the best interest of the country. And we have to have members of Congress who can distinguish, who have the ability to, to work with people they disagree with, and then at the same time, uh, on a different issue, be able to disagree with them respectfully and oppose them uh, and not personalize all these debates uh, and um, and try to make sure that we are, you know, are looking out for the best interest of the country at all times. So like I said, I'm one of the folks down there who can try to work to find uh, solutions to problems. I've demonstrated leadership in that regard. In fact, as I said earlier on the program, uh, Scott, I said that the, you know, the only bill that the only appropriations bill that has been passed into law on time since 2009 was mine, and we did it just before the end of September. Uh, and I'm proud of that fact, and uh, partly because of you know the approach I've taken to my work, and that we need to see more of it. Congressman Charlie Dent, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. By now, you've probably heard these remarks by Donald Trump many times. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss them. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the <laughs> I can do anything. Politics aside, and I understand that's difficult to do, the attention on Trump's remarks on that tape have led to a national conversation about sexual assault and how men think of women, among other topics. We want to continue that conversation today with Kristen Hauser, who is Chief Public Affairs Officer at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center and Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Kristen, welcome back to the program. Hi, Scott. All right, let's go back a week. When you first heard those remarks, your thoughts? Uh, I, I think my thoughts were right in line with the rest of the country. It's uh, unusual to hear those kinds of things being uh, made public, and um, uh, we're, th- we're thankful for the national conversation. It's, it's reopened. I mean, I think we've seen a series of these high-profile cases leading to the public's engaging in what, what does masculinity look like, what's normal, um, talking about these things happening with incredible frequency in our culture, and, and that's an important talk we should all be having. Now, when you say that um, you're thankful that it's open to national conversation, what way? What what have you seen? Oh my gosh, we've seen uh, our social media pages become very active. Uh, certainly, watching the uh, hashtag trends on Twitter with you know thousands and thousands of women uh, talking about incidents that that they have personally experienced and and bringing these things into light and it's really exposing um the the incredible common happening that you know that the different levels of sexual assault that people um experience throughout their life from you know being grabbed on the subway in public to things that happen on dates things that happen within the the family um classmates i mean it's across the spectrum and women are finally talking about how frequently they experience these things and if you would like to talk about it, join our conversation. We have open lines. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment, tell a story on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. You know, I, I, this is probably one of those dumb questions that uh, has an obvious answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Um why? Why did it take something like this to get so many women to come forth? 
Well, honestly, this isn't the first time, but every time we have a high-profile case, this sort of thing has been happening. And I think that this is one of the examples of how social media can be really used for good. Um, that people, when people start talking about their reactions to this, and it's in a way that is condemning the behavior, um, showing support for people who experience these things, it creates like a little bubble of safety in our culture that allows people to come forward and say, this is wrong. It happened to me. This is how it's impacted me. And not only that, have we had, you know, women coming forward, but the other amazing thing that's happened that it's something we've we've wanted to see are lots of men stepping forward to say, this isn't okay. This isn't how my friends and I talk. This isn't the standard we want in our families or our communities. And, and it's an opportunity to um, very publicly be a, a positive role model and talk about what healthy masculinity looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, something that uh, Donald Trump said right afterwards in that debate that last Sunday night, uh, Sunday a week ago, was that this was locker room talk. And mm-hmm. he explained to office this is how guys talk when they're around each other. Um, Since then, as you said, there have been a number of men who have come forward and said, you know what, like professional athletes, for example, and have said, that's not how we talk in a a locker room. But at the same time, I mean, I think every man alive has been in a situation where talking to another man, talk about the physical attributes of a woman, you know, someone Mm -hmm. they find attractive. Now, as far as he went... And I'll ask you about that, but we still have those conversations. Sure. I I think that uh, any 11 or 12-year-old girl and any woman older than that knows the difference between uh, a compliment or admiration or uh, comments that are being made in a kind of exploitive or or degrading way. Um, And I I think most men know the difference, too. So certainly I do think our culture has some um, norms that are about men bonding around the varying levels of degradation of other women. But I also think we've had a national conversation start, and and quite frankly, this administration and Vice President Joe Biden with the It's On Us campaign in a very public way, encouraging lots of people to uh, speak out when those things happen, to redirect the conversation, and to to publicly state what is acceptable. And I think we have more and more men in in a variety of roles in our culture participating in that and and not... um, joining the conversation, not silently sitting by and feeling like you have to quietly tolerate it, but being able to speak up and say, you know, that that's not cool or that's not okay, or I would never talk about somebody that way. And just that, that simple act of saying that's not healthy and then role modeling something that is more positive can really change uh, that that norm. And so we're, we're pleased to see that has started. Aside from the fact that uh, it's a presidential candidate who is... Uh, uh, who who said this? Um, where did the where was the line crossed? Be- I mean, with that background knowledge that there are so many men who who talk about uh, physical appearances of women and you know, rate them on a scale of one to ten, uh, you know, talk about uh, having sex with them. But where was the line crossed with what Trump did? Right. This isn't about the offensive terminology or language that was used. The, I think the outrage is really coming from saying. I just start. I don't ask. 
and using the word grab. Um, so we're, we are talking about um, somebody bragging about invading uh, the, the personal space, the body, touching somebody in... Um, sexual assault. In, in sexual assault, exactly. Every state has some kind of statute in their sex, sex crimes code that's going to cover this sort of behavior. Uh, it may not be felony one, but it's, it's defined. Um, so when, when you have somebody saying, like, I, I do these things and I don't ask permission, I just do it, um, I think that that's, that struck people as um, outrageous. Let's take a phone call from uh, Don in Carlisle. Don, you're on the air. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I think it's important not to let Mr. Trump move the goalposts and saying it was only words and I didn't really do it. And it's about actions, not words. Words matter by way of extreme example. If somebody said, let's lynch blacks, it wouldn't be okay if they hadn't done it. If somebody said, let's send Jews to the gas chamber, it wouldn't be okay because they hadn't done it. When somebody says, I commit sexual assault upon women, and speaks of it approvingly, it's in the same category. Words really matter. That was Michelle Obama's fabulous point. I'd like to hear your host, your guest comments about the notion of Trump saying, so long as I didn't do it, it doesn't matter what I said. Hey, Don, thank you very much for your call. Kristen? That's actually a, a great point. One of the things we spend a lot of time helping people recognize is that our words matter. The way we talk about sexual violence matters, the way we talk about victims matter, and the way we talk about people who perpetrate these crimes matters. It matters because it defines the climate and the environment in which we live. So as long as we have the conversation that's been the one that we've been having for the past several centuries where we're blaming victims, questioning their behavior, um, thinking that we can't trust them. And, and I, I do want to point out the ironic um, thing that happens that we, we don't want to believe victims when they say that something happened. But after we've badgered them or disbelieved them and they finally say, OK, it didn't, we're willing to believe that right off the bat. So there, there really is a discrepancy there. Um, you know, but th the bottom line is we create a climate in which we all live. And that climate can be one that is open to people being able to step forward and get help to identify the people that are causing harm and to seek justice, or it can be one that keeps them silent and keeps perpetrators invisible. So it is important that we pay attention to how we talk about these things. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our guest uh, during this portion of the program is Kristen Hauser. She's Chief Public Affairs Officer at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center and the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. If you have a question... Uh, or a comment, maybe a story to tell. Have you been the victim of uh, something like this, of what uh, Donald Trump had described? Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on, on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Uh, we have a, uh, an email here that says, even using the term you guys is sexist. What about the gals out there? We are left out every time that phrase is used. I think it's what this is from Pinky. Uh, what Pinky is talking about here is that uh, men are sexually assaulted as well. Men certainly are sexually assaulted as well and also do experience harassment in the workplace. Um, the, our 
point, what we want to see is a culture where we are promoting respectful interactions, no matter what the gender and in all, all situations. Um, unfortunately, when we start talking about the things that adults experience, we, we definitely have uh, a disproportionate number of um, women being victims and, and men being the instigators in those cases. But that's not to say it doesn't happen the other way. We do have... Um, men who are sexually assaulted uh, more frequently by other men than by women. But we, we do also have women who do these things. And we have women who prey on teenage boys. And we have women that sexually abuse children. So this isn't, um, when we're talking about the crimes, you, you can't uh, define them solely by gender. But when we look at all the national data that has been collected over decades, there certainly is a trend that, that more frequently um, th this is gendered violence. Uh, and, and we also know, too, that male victims experience that on another level, that when they come forward, we used um, gendered terminology to shame them and keep them silent. So again, our, the way we talk about these things matters. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get back to uh, the, the language part of it. Um, you know, when you're, I, I, one of the things that struck me, you're right. I mean, one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is because it did start a national conversation. Mm -hmm. There were many more uh, women, uh, probably men too, but women have gotten most attention who have come out and said that uh, I was a victim of this. This is something that, uh, that did happen to me. But one of the things that struck me was uh, a lot of people mostly Trump supporters who said, okay, well, they were ready to pass it off, is that, uh, you know, we know that there are guys who, t who talk that way, and I'm w willing to look past it. I mean, that was a bit of a surprise to me that they were willing. I mean, there were many more, I mean, even supporters who said that, uh, you know, he was wrong. I, I do not agree with what he said. There was, I, don't, I have daughters. Everyone brought that example out. Mm -hmm. Daughters, sisters, mothers, wives, and all that. But at the same time, they were willing to overlook it. What's that say about our society? I think it says we're pretty used to this. You know, it's it's that's a short and sweet answer. But uh, the, the free, you know, again, when we look at the research, uh, we, we have approximately 20% of adult women, even here in the Commonwealth, where, where we've uh, done national surveys and divided that out, 19 to 20% of adult women in the Commonwealth have experienced sexual assault at some point in their lives, that, that you know, being completed or attempted rape. When you expand that to other kinds of sexual violence, it goes much, much higher. So even if this is a topic we don't talk about very much, the pervasiveness in our lives is undeniable. Let's go uh, to someone who doesn't want to use her name or a name in Lancaster. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Well, I guess that person is no longer there. But uh, we'll, we're getting some more calls here, but we have about 10 minutes. So if you'd like to get a call in, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. You know, I said at the very beginning, politics aside, it is hard to... Uh, to, to, to divorce politics from this. But one of the ways that uh, Donald Trump has responded as, if you could say, defend himself is to bring up Bill Clinton's uh, sexual history and infidelities and Hillary Clinton's role in that. Many people have pointed out that uh, you know, some of the conversations we're having today started during the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal. What's different here? I think one of the things that's different is social media, <laughs> frankly. Uh, the pervasiveness and, and the ease with which we can 
have these conversations and debate one another and share tidbits of information that we have is, is very different. And I, I don't know that um, things would have gone the same in the 90s if we had had social media back then. I, I really see that influence uh, coming out hugely here. I think it's important to say, though, that I don't think we view this as a political issue in terms of the election. Um, but when we look at the the cultural elements that contribute to social norms that are either um, protective against gendered violence and sexual violence and domestic violence and all these kinds of things, or social norms that are permission giving, we look at those things as human rights issues. So um, this is this is. Uh, this is just the issue for our organization, no matter what's going on in the country. So, um, you know, the, the fact that we have a presidential candidate sparking this conversation makes it a little harder for us to talk about. We're a nonpartisan organization, and um, but we're here to talk about the behaviors and what it represents. Let's talk a little more about that with uh, George in Gettysburg. George, you're on the air. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, a great, great topic here. Thank you. I'd first like to say as a husband and a father that I think Donald Trump's uh, you know, comments at any time were reprehensible and unacceptable and certainly uh, inexcusable. Uh, that being said, I also think that uh, this, this treatment and uh, objectifying of women is ubiquitous in our society. Uh, I heard what uh, you know, uh, Michelle Obama said, and I think she was right. However... Uh, it seems like she ignored the, the fact that they've also invited a lot of rappers to the White House. That if you listen to some of that stuff, uh, that's pretty uh, derogatory towards women, also. And I feel like even going back to the 90s, like you were just talking about, uh, Clarence Thomas's hearings, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like this thing seems to come up. I mean, it's nothing new. Uh, I'd like to see uh, as, a, as a society. And even in our movies, our, our culture, there's a lot of this, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, mm. sexual perversion that's going on. It's, on. it's in movies, it's on television, it just seems like it's everywhere, and then after a while it becomes normal. Hey, thank you very much for your call, George. Kristen? We agree with George. It is it is uh, shockingly normal and common, and we too would like to see things starting to to look differently. I will say it, we do see some um, entertainment media doing it differently. Um, so while we may still have sexual violence in in entertainment, there are shows or programs or series that are treating it seriously, that are showing the long lasting effect by having a character's um, literally change who they are, change that character, which is what experiencing these things can do. Um, we're talking about prevention more often. We have more positive role models uh, for, for male behavior in, in the media. So while I'm not going to say, you know, the tide is totally turned, we are heartened to see that there are some programs that are, are doing a better job about that. And also some, um, you know, movies, doc whether they're documentary or entertainment, that are are showing the harm of this and, and offering something different. So we, we hope that's the beginning of a bigger trend. But he is right, though, about, uh, you know, aside from the invitations to the White House, uh, rap music, for for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, you watch some of those videos, and it's it's some of them are almost porn-like. 
true and i will also say but i'm not i'm not going to focus solely on rap and hip-hop culture uh country music lyrics have it rock lyrics have it um i i'm hard pressed to think of a genre where we don't hear these kinds of things coming up as normal parts of of the uh of the the lyrics to songs. I mean, I know myself, I'll catch myself singing something, you know, in a car that I've been singing for 25 years and I finally really listen to those words. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm singing that. You know, I'm dying to hear, hear you sing one of those songs, but I won't. I we won't, we ask, won't torture your I listeners. Won't, I won't ask you that. Let's go to Louise in Glen Rock. Louise, you're on the air. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for the program. Um, when I was 18 years old and graduated from high school and was told, get out and get a job and don't come home without one, I did. Um, and uh, all through the 44 years that I worked uh, in law offices and stuff, um, I was sexually assaulted every day. And when I told my boss or not my boss because he was the perp <laughs> um when i told other people in the office about it they just laughed it off like oh well that's the way he is and whatever you know i'm i am disgusted by uh, trump and uh, he needs to go <laughs> thank right. you Th- thank you very for your call and i think that uh, i don't know whether louise mentioned in phone call but she did to the fall fo- the call screener that she's 70 years old what she shows is that this has been going on for a long, long time. I think this has been going on since the beginning of time, and, and we see that documented in, in history. So um, this is, I think that the past few years have really been shedding light that, that we're at a a, um, a watershed moment in, in our culture, that the kinds of conversations that we have been having, um, the people speaking out, people demonstrating what they would like to see instead, they're becoming more and more common. So th- this is a turning point, and we all have the opportunity to be part of the solution. We had a call from Linda who couldn't stay on the line. Uh, wanted to know why women are being treated like this. We act like women can't stand on their own two feet. Why not discuss women as being able to stand up to this rather than being defensive? Well... I like to point out that vulnerability is in the eye of the offender. And so this isn't to say that that women are um, ongoing victims, but the bottom line is uh, you don't have the ability to control another person's behavior. So this isn't about what women do or don't do or how they stand up or fight back or any of those kinds of things. The bottom line is whether or not other people are inflicting themselves into our personal space onto our bodies uh this is this conversation is about needs to be about the offender behavior not people that are are targeted by offenders we only have a minute or so left uh kristen is this a watershed moment i mean as you said there have been other profile high profile cases that uh, i think of the ray rice case uh uh, you know, where we have talked about sexual assault, domestic violence against uh, women and men. But is this a watershed moment, something that will be long lasting? I, I think this is one of many. Uh, I don't think the conversation that's been happening the past week would have happened without the Brock Turner case, without Ray Rice, without uh, several of the judges who have both Canada and U.S. who have been uh, really focused on it in on, so, on social media, in particular for inappropriate comments or inappropriate sentences. So, um, I, I think the past several years there has been growing um, national 
outrage at these acts and growing investment in, in changing it. Kristen Hauser is the Chief Public Affairs Officer for the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Kristen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, another candidate. Uh, coming up, a uh, libertarian candidate for Congress in the 16th District.